and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal Neonatal Edition podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, one of the associate editors of the journal, and today we're discussing with one of the authors on the editor's choice paper in this edition of the journal entitled Severe Acquired Subglottic Stenosis in Neonatal Intensive Care Graduates, a Case Control Study. And I'll let the uh, author introduce herself now. Hi, uh, I'm Rebecca Thomas. I'm one of the neonatal consultants at Perth Children's Hospital in Western Australia. And thanks for for joining us, uh, Becky. Um, Something that's important to most neonatologists and most neonatologists have come across that baby who's difficult to extubate and has then problems uh, later on in life. Could you just give us a bit of background to why you thought this study was important to um, undertake? So this study came about because um, we were actually looking into the use of cuffed endotracheal tubes in neonates um, as it's becoming uh, more commonly used in our surgical patients and I actually was uh, leading an RCT um, to look at their use and as part of my research and thesis I was looking at the background for that. Um, so um, why would we want to change um, the type of endotracheal tube that we use and I guess um, the worry, worry with any endotracheal tube is that the damage that it causes and then when you look back and do a literature review of, of uh, subglottic stenosis in neonates um, all that I really found was quite a few papers from the 70s and 80s um, and then very little since um, and the The studies that have been done have been of quite low numbers. Uh, The populations have been quite different. And so we decided that we'd look at our own population. Um, Because we um, basically are a state that only has one children's hospital and has uh, one neonatal clinical care unit, um, we should have complete numbers. And so it was a good opportunity to look at all of the um, children that have had surgery um, for subglottic stenosis and then look back to see what were the risk factors for that. I suppose that brings us on to, so how did you select your population? Who got included? Who got excluded? Probably more importantly. So we actually um, looked over a nine-year period between um, 2006 and 2014 at all the children in the whole of WA, uh, Western Australia, that had um, undergone surgery, um, surgical treatment for subglottic stenosis. Now, most of these were laryngotracheal reconstructions, but there were also a few children that had had just tracheostomy or supraglottoplasties. Um, Once we got all those numbers... Um, of which there were 50, um, and this includes all children up to the age of 16, then we actually looked back at their causes and which ones of those were actually what you would call ex-neonatal ICU graduates. Uh, And actually there were 37 of those. And then we could actually uh, look further at, uh, you know, what their gestational age were and then other risk factors um, so that we could, our comparison group that we used, um, were we uh, matched two patients by gestational age and year of birth for every patient that we had with subglottic stenosis and then um, compared risk factors. Okay. And... Well, what were the, your, your key findings um, uh, in the paper and were there any surprises in those um, uh, findings? So we actually looked at all the subglottic stenosis um, and we divided into it into congenital subglottic stenosis and acquired subglottic stenosis. Um, this is the first time that an incidence of congenital subglottic stenosis has ever been reported in the literature. 
as far as I can tell. Um, and we actually found that we had four patients with that and that there was an instance of 1.8 per 100,000 live births, so it's pretty rare. Um, then we looked at our um, acquired subglottic stenosis and we actually had 43 of those, but of those uh, 37 were NICU graduates and there were six PICU graduates. So then we really concentrated on those 37 NICU graduates uh, and two of those actually had been born overseas, so that left us with 35. Um, so once we had those 35, we then looked at the incidence um, for each gestational age, which again, has there's never been the numbers to be able to do that before. And what was quite striking was that although there's not enough number to actually um, show significance, it really does appear that the lower gestation that you are, the higher risk that there is. And we actually found that 9.1% of surviving 23-weekers uh, actually went on to develop severe subglottic stenosis and 5.1% of 24-weekers. And then the numbers reduced week by week. All but two of our patients were actually under um, 30 weeks gestation. So it really does seem to be a complication of extreme prematurity or certainly being under 30 weeks. And then if you actually look at the weight categories as well, it's pretty much um, certainly in our population was um, if you were under 1,500 grams, you were at much higher risk. And there were very few patients over 1,500 grams, just the two that developed subglottic stenosis. So once we um, defined the incidences, um, we actually compared with our controls um, and as has been shown before we found a number of things that were um, seemed to be associated with um, the development of subglottic stenosis um, that was the number of previous intubations um, the length of time with an endotracheal tubing um, episodes of unplanned extubation which actually hadn't been shown before um, multiple attempts at intubation I don't think we did show um, um, significant difference with. An episode of traumatic intubation when it had been recorded certainly seemed to increase your risk also um, and also oversized tubes. When we actually did um, a um, multivariate analysis um, what we actually found the things that that came up as as um, being risk factors um, were again um, large tubes more than five previous intubations and you mentioned the number there so what uh, and then the, the stratification so overall what's the incidence of, of subglucosinosis in that sub 30 week uh, population yeah so the actual incidence um, in overall um, was 0.93%. So that's all babies that are admitted to the ICU. If you move to the less than 28-week gestation, um, we found an instance of 3.8% um, with greater, than 20, greater or equal to 28 weeks being 0.13%. Uh, and that was statistically significant. Uh, if you actually look at the birth weight um, for babies, less than 1500 grams at birth um, the incidence was 1.5 percent and then um, the incidence for funnily enough for 1500 to, to two kilos was zero percent and then infants greater than two kilos was 0.12 percent so again just showing that it really is um, a complication of, of being very small or very um, premature. Okay so in terms of then clinical practical pragmatic implications so what what 
Obviously, prevention is better than cure. You don't want to see an ENT specialist unless you really have to. No offence to the ENT specialists. Um, so what, 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 what can we do to try and avoid this? Or do you think the paper stretches that far? What did your sort of personal view on how, yeah. to, how to avoid this? The other thing that I also just wanted to, to point out is, is the mode of presentation. Um, because I think it's worth mentioning that I think it was 55% of patients um, who had subglottic stenosis actually presented in um, with strider in the neonatal period. In our controls, 0% had strider in the neonatal period. So if you have a baby with strider, even if they appear to improve, I think that you have to be have a very high index of suspicion of developing subglottic stenosis. And that in itself is actually quite an interesting sort of clinical um, uh, sequelae, um, especially in the neonatal period prior to discharge if, if a soft strider is present um, or even a light one. So, and the other thing I was going to say is that the age of presentation. So, although again the majority did present in the neonatal period with a median, I think it was around term. Um, there were quite a few outliers and there were babies that presented at some months of age, even up to um, over a year of age. And to, again, just be aware that subglottic stenosis doesn't always pre- present initially and it's something that can present later. So, um, Becky, what can, what can people do to try and avoid this, this happening in the neonatal graduates? Um, so I think the first thing is um, to uh, limit the use of invasive ventilation, clearly, which is what we're trying to do for chronic lung disease anyway, um, trying to extubate early. However, um, limit the number of tubes that the baby has. Um, and one thing I think we really need to work on generally is to limit unplanned extubations. So th- thank you very much for, for discussing your, your paper with us. As always, the, the roots of... of um discussion and interaction with the the twitter handle for adc uh, fetal neonatal edition which is adc underscore fn or you can tweet me jonathan uh, underscore davis three and we look forward to your comments and thanks again becky thank you